Today, we begin our Advent series. We will cover the topics uh, for this Advent on hope, peace, joy and love. And today, we will be focusing uh, on hope. But have you asked yourself this question? What is the meaning and significance of Advent? We have heard this word uh, very often, right? Advent actually comes from the word Adventus, trans, uh, from Latin, and it translates to coming or arrival. So Advent is a time where it serves to remind us of Jesus' historical arrival 2,000 years ago, fulfilling the promises of the Messiah in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there were many prophecies regarding the Advent of Christ. And when Jesus came, He fulfilled all those promises. Simultaneously, it caused us to prepare ourselves for Jesus' second coming. In the New Testament, you also uh, read of the prophecies of Jesus' second coming. So that is what Advent is all about. As we celebrate Advent, we remember Jesus' first coming and we also look forward to the second coming of Christ. And today we shall be focusing on the theme of hope. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, in the days of Micah, the people of God were in exile. They were facing a lot of suffering and they were losing hope. However, Micah prophesied about the coming Messiah who will save his people, even specifically naming Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Messiah. This is significant. Why? Because God is a God of details. A prophecy must have some details so that when it comes to pass, you know that the prophecy is fulfilled. And 700 years later after the prophecy, Jesus was born where? In Bethlehem, just as it was prophesied. It was this prophecy that led the wise men to Jesus. Our hope is not something that is in the air. Our hope is a solid hope. And last week, Pastor Peter shared with us that hope has a name. What is the name of hope? The name of Jesus. That is the hope that we have. So as we celebrate Christmas, remember that Jesus is the hope of Christmas. Jesus is the hope of the world. And let us also remember God's prophecy, the fulfillment of God's prophecy concerning Jesus. Matthew chapter 2 records for us the birth of Jesus. Or chapter 1 records for us the birth of Jesus. And then uh, chapter 2 uh, says this. And it is a fulfillment of Micah's prophecy. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem were with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for it is 
For this is what the prophet has written. The prophet Micah has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So today we want to study Micah. What is Micah all about? The Bible Project has produced a wonderful video summary and I would like to share it with us so that we can learn some precious lessons on hope in our first Advent message today. Let us watch the video together. The book of the prophet Micah. Micah lived in a small town named Moreshet in the southern kingdom of Judah, about the same time as Isaiah. And both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel had split long ago, and both had been violating their covenant with the God of Israel. So Micah warned that God would bring the big bad empire of Assyria to take out the northern kingdom and come ravage Jerusalem. And he also warned that after them, Babylon would bring an even greater destruction. Like all the prophets, Micah spoke on God's behalf to accuse Israel. Or as he puts it in chapter 3, I am filled with strength, with the spirit of God, with justice and power to declare how Israel has rebelled. And so, most of this book explores Micah's accusations and his warnings of God's judgment on Israel. But Micah also had a message of hope that countered these warnings about the restoration God would bring on the other side of his judgment. And if you dive into the book with us, you'll see how this works. So the first two sections of the book develop Micah's accusations and warnings against Israel and its leaders. So part one opens with the poetic description of God appearing over Israel, just like he did at Mount Sinai. There's fire and smoke and earthquake, but he hasn't come to make a covenant this time. He's come to bring his judgment on Israel for over 500 years of rebellion. Micah goes on to name all of these towns and cities in Israel that are the culprits of all of this rebellion, God's coming for them. But why exactly? So Micah picks a fight with Israel's leaders. He says that they've become wealthy through theft and greed. He alludes to the story of Ahab stealing a family vineyard from Naboth in 1 Kings chapter 21. But also it's because Israel's prophets are corrupt. They're quite happy to offer promises of God's protection to anyone who can afford to pay them. No, Micah says, God has withdrawn his protection from Israel. In the second section of accusations, Micah describes even more how Israel's leaders and prophets have together committed grave injustice. They run the land through bribery, they bend justice to favor the wealthy, and the poor are deprived of their land, their security, and their hope. And all of this is a violation of the laws of the Torah, which declare it illegal to sell land that belongs to families, even if they're poor. And so we find out that God's judgment is going to take the form of an oppressive nation that comes to take out the northern kingdom and Jerusalem and its temple, which will be reduced to ruins. Now these are very stiff warnings, and they're not the final word. Each of these warning sections is concluded with a striking promise of hope. So first is a poem about how God is like a shepherd who's going to rescue and regather his flock, which is the remnant of his people, and he's going to bring them all back to good pasture and become their king once more. 
The second warning section is concluded by picking up this image of the ruined Jerusalem temple. And Micah says this won't be permanent. One day God is going to exalt his temple. He's going to fill it with his presence and fill the city with the remnant of his people. And so God's purpose is to make Israel the meeting place of heaven and earth so that all nations will stream to Jerusalem where God becomes the king of all the nations, bringing peace to the earth. Now, these two concluding poems of hope, they're very powerful. And the next section of the book actually develops them further in a beautifully designed series of poems that are entirely about the future hope of Israel and the nations. So we learn that after the Assyrian attack, Israel will be conquered and exiled to Babylon. But from there, God will restore his people and bring them back to their land. And then we learn that in the new Jerusalem, a new messianic king from the line of David will come. He'll be born in Bethlehem and then rule in Jerusalem over the restored people of God. Finally, in this messianic kingdom of God, the faithful remnant of God's people will become that blessing among the nations. But at the same time, God will bring his final justice and remove evil from his world. The final section of the book returns to this pattern of warning followed by hope that we saw in the first parts of the book. So Micah exposes again the unjust economic practices of Israel's leaders and how it's destroying the land and its people. And here Micah offers his famous words that summarize what it means for Israel to follow their God. He has told you, O human, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is exactly what Israel has not been doing, and so they will come to ruin. However, the book ends with another powerful note of hope. Israel is personified as an individual who's sitting alone in shame and defeat. It's a clear image of Israel's destruction and exile. And this individual is watching for God's mercy, and he begs God to listen and forgive. But why? Why should God listen to and forgive this faithless and rebellious people? Well, the poet offers two reasons. First, he says, because of God's character. Who is a God like you who forgives sin and pardons rebellion? He knows that God's mercy is more powerful than his anger or his judgment. And the second reason is because of God's promises. He says, you will stay true to Jacob and show covenant love to Abraham as you swore so long ago. Now, these are the final words of the book. They're an allusion to God's covenant promises to Abraham and his family all the way back in the book of Genesis, that all nations would find God's blessing through Abraham's family. But to become a blessing to the nations, Israel must first be faithful to their God. And so this explains this back and forth between judgment and hope in the book of Micah. If God's going to bless the nations through Israel, then he must confront and judge the evil among his people. But his judgment is what leads to hope. Because God's covenant love and promise are more powerful than human evil, and his ultimate purpose is not to destroy, it's to save and redeem. Or as the concluding lines of the book put it, God delights in covenant love, so he will again show compassion. He will trample our evil. He will toss our sins into the depth of the sea. And that's what the book of Micah is all about. Very nice summary, isn't it? There are many lessons that we can learn from the book of Micah. But the major lesson we want to learn today it's about judgment and hope from God. Judgment and hope from God.
judgment and hope is like uh, the beginning and the end. But there's something in between called repentance. Okay, so we want to uh, understand that in the book of Micah, there were two cycles uh, of judgment, repentance and hope. There's no shortcut, huh? There cannot be judged from judgment straight away to hope without repentance. There must be a repentance. God judges His people. His people repents and hope is restored. And this is a major theme not only in Micah but also of the Bible. And not only in the Bible, it is also a major theme in each one of our lives, isn't it? God judges us, we repent, and then hope is restored. So let's have a closer look at judgment. And I want to begin by asking you this question, a reflection question. In your life, have you felt helpless and hopeless? I do not want to rush this through. This is for you to process. So I give us a minute or so to think about it. Have you ever felt hopeless and helpless in your life? Hold on to it or write it down somewhere. You don't have to share yours. But I will share mine with you. I first felt helpless and hopeless when I entered secondary school, 12 years old. I was overwhelmed by my studies, so many subjects, from four subjects suddenly double, you know. I cannot cope because I'm not an academic. I was so unhappy, I asked myself some existential question. Why must I be born? God, why do you give me such a family, such parents? What is the purpose of studies? I see the teenagers all smiling. Means I got it right, yeah, somewhere. And I began mixing with the wrong people while I was looking for my identity. And my life spiraled downwards. I felt helpless. I felt hopeless. And it didn't help when my parents call me hopeless. They label me hopeless. At that point of time, I truly felt that way. I felt hopeless. What will I become? Now we move on to our second question. When you were feeling hopeless and helpless, what was your innermost need? If you know your innermost need, good, but truth be told, at that point of time, 
I didn't know my innermost need. I mean, what do you expect of a 13-year-old who's so hopeless and helpless? Of course, now I look back, I know what was my innermost need. Although I didn't know my innermost need, praise be to God. God knows. He knows. Amen? He knows your innermost need. And He met my innermost need. How did He meet my innermost need? He brought me to a youth camp. Okay, so youth join youth camp, okay? Brought me to a youth camp and during the youth camp, the pastor spoke to me using the Word of God. And the pastor didn't pull any punches and neither did the Holy Spirit. I was confronted. Leonard, you are a sinner. It was a direct hit. The Holy Spirit convicted me of my sins. As a rebel, I thank God I wasn't offended. And I meant up to it. Even then, I felt helpless and hopeless. You know how the feeling is like, right? When you're confronted of your sin, and then the Bible tells you that all sinners are going to hell and going to get burned there forever and ever. Helpless and hopeless. Leave also cannot, die also cannot. <laughs> I was sorry for my sins. I knew I was destined for hell. Don't know basement 1 or basement 18 only, like I always say. But I'm going there for sure. I was sorry for my sins and I was sorry for myself. That is how hopeless and helpless I was. What was the problem? Was the problem my parents? Was the problem my school? Was the problem my friends? Was the problem the pastor? What was the problem? The problem is my sin. My sin. God is confronting my sin. That is the real problem. Whatever your helpless and hopeless situation that you are in or you have been in before, take responsibility of your own sin. God confronted my sinfulness and as the pastor shared the gospel to me, he invited me to accept Jesus as my saviour. I repented of my sin and I meant every word when I said I'm sorry for sinning to God. I don't want to continue sinning. I mean, who wants to continue sinning? Anyone here? No. Even the most hardcore ex-offender or the offender in prison, you ask them, do you want to continue sinning? They may tell you, oh, I want to go to hell because all my friends are there. But I tell you, deep inside their hearts, nobody continues enjoying sinning. As I repented, God forgave me and welcomed me into His spiritual family as a son. For the first time in my life, I experienced hope. 
For the first time in my life, I experienced peace. For the first time in my life, I experienced joy. For the first time in my life, I experienced love. Friends, do not despise God's judgment. God confronts us, our sin, because He loves us. You know, in, 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 in our daily dealings, we don't like people to confront us about our weaknesses, our shortcomings, our sin, right? Why? Because they are not kind as God. They are not merciful as God. They are not gracious as God. But when God confronts us, it is a good thing. Good will come out of that confrontation. If we repent, if we take it correctly, Perhaps today, God is confronting some of us about our sins. Hoping that you will repent. And I want you to know this. You are not helpless and you are not hopeless. We move on to repentance. What does repentance look like? Pastor Rob Reno of Visionary Family Ministries shares these five powerful ingredients uh, we can include when we ask for forgiveness. And he writes it in the context of family members because he ministers to the family. But I want to say that this is also applicable to us when we ask God, when in repentance we ask God. Okay? So as... I go on, bear in mind that this is applicable with your dealings with God as well. He says, before you share these things, it might be helpful to begin your conversation this way with your family member. I want to have an important conversation with you. I know we have been dealing with problems in our relationship, whether spouse or children, parents, friends, and I want you to know that some of these problems are my fault. I have some things I want to confess to you. So the first step is confession. Confession should be short and sweet to the point. We simply state the wrong thing that we did. I was rude to you. I shouted at you. I was jealous of you. I neglected you. I cheated on you, I hit you, I slapped you, I have been looking at porn, I lied to you about our money situation, etc., etc. To the point. If it is a list of things, go through the list. It must be intentional. That means it cannot be random. Eh? Repentance is never random. You sin in detail, you must confess in detail. You cannot keep sinning and then you say, God, forgive me of all my sin. All 40 years of sin, okay? God, hampalang, all forgive. It doesn't work that way. God will forgive, yes, but you will never learn. You must do it in detail. And no sugar coating, no blaming, no excuses. This is what I've done wrong. Just clearly admit what you did. This means battling through any shame that we may feel. 
Very shameful, right? When you confess, you must overcome that. He says this, he gives this example. I remember a time when I spilled a large glass of water over one of my books. I needed to get the book dried out quickly, so I had the brilliant idea of putting the book in the microwave. I cranked the thing up, and after a minute or so, the book caught fire. It burned in there for a few seconds, and then after a loud bang, the microwave shut down. I, opened, I quickly opened the microwave, I grabbed the book, and I threw it in the sink. There was smoke everywhere, and the microwave was shot. His wife Amy was out, and he got everything cleaned up. When she came home, she smelled the smoke and asked, What had happened? He lied and said, I was heating up my dinner in the microwave and accidentally left my, my fork on the plate. The metal fork started sparking and caused the microwave to blow. I was ashamed of my foolishness, so I tried to cover up with a lie. Eventually, the truth came out, but I had done additional damage to the situation by failing to quickly confess the truth. When you tell a lie, you need another lie to cover. And then you need another lie to cover. And as you tell more people more lies, you forget what you tell them. And that is how you get found out. Confession, short and sweet, to the point. Secondly, acknowledge you were wrong. It must come from the heart. After you have confessed your sins, simply say, I was wrong. Here are three words many people seem incapable of expressing. No one likes to admit being wrong. Our pride is like something in our mouths that prevents those words from coming out. In my experience, he says, I am only able to honestly say this if I have done the necessary vertical work. The vertical work of repentance. I need the Lord to soften my heart and break my pride so that I can truly humbly come before my family and say I am wrong. It must come from us. If I'm having a quarrel with my wife, my wife cannot keep saying that I'm wrong. Because why? It will harden my heart. I must know that I am wrong. And then when I say I'm sorry, I'm wrong, that is me. Thirdly, express regret. This is the step where we say, I am sorry. There may be value in pressing this to a deeper level. You know, sometimes I quarrel with my wife. Does it surprise you? No, right? Normal. Huh? Husband, wife, getting to know you. You get to know each other by quarreling. <laughs> when, when I am usually the first one to say I'm sorry. I love her. And I, I don't like the confrontation to linger for too long. I am one who always say I'm sorry. And then you know what she said? She asked me, what are you sorry for? <laughs> and that is exactly the question. We must go deeper. 
Are you sorry because you got caught? Are you sorry because the conflict is annoying? What are you sorry for? And she will press. She's very good at pressing it out. Like press pimple. Eh? <laughs> Sometimes very painful. For me, Rob Reno says this. For me, when the Lord truly gives me a truly repentant heart, I'm sorry. I feel bad for how my words and actions hurt my family members. I'm not sorry this happened, but I'm sorry that I hurt you. You might say, I know that my selfishness hurts you, and I'm sorry for that. Or, I feel terrible that my lies have hurt you and caused you not to trust me, and I'm sorry for that. Fourth, you must commit to change. If not, you keep on coming back and say sorry. Right? You must commit to change. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of behaviour. You must have a change of heart, change of mind, then you must have a change of behaviour. Not the other way around. So when God confronts us, there must be a change of heart, a change of mind in our beliefs, and then our actions, our doing. While we cannot promise or deliver on a perfect future, we can express our desire to change our future behaviour. And you may want to tell your loved one something like this. I want you to know that I have confessed these things to God. I have asked the Lord and will continue to ask Him to change my heart and help me to act differently. In some situations, it may be necessary to take additional steps to clarify your commitment to pursuing change. You may want to do something like this. I have made the decision to, change, to start counselling with a Christian counsellor. Or I have started counselling with my pastor. Or I, have, I will be talking each week to my mentor or to my mentee or to so-and-so who I have asked to help keep me accountable to making changes in this area of my life. I know we are all answerable to God, but we must also be accountable to a human being. If not, being accountable to God becomes an excuse, huh? for not doing anything to effect change. Fifthly, ask for forgiveness. The prayerful goal of this process is that your family member will make the choice to forgive you for what you have done or contribute to the conflict. If they choose to forgive you, that does not mean all difficult feelings will instantly erase. It is not control, alternate, delete and then start all over. Okay, unless your loved one gets dementia. Lah. It is not instant. However, the process of asking for forgiveness and giving forgiveness are powerful steps on the path towards healing and reconciliation. After you have walked through the first four steps, consider saying something like this. I want to ask you a question. 
it is okay if you need time to think about it before you give me an answer. Will you forgive me for what I have done? At this point in the conversation, many things can happen. The person may cry. The person may be angry. The person may be silent. And friends, there's nothing you can do to manage this response. If the person is hurt and crying, you cannot say, stop crying, please. <laughs> that is not your right. That is the right of the other person. You are only there to do your part. And Lord willing, your conversation will be one of the many important moments in the healing of the relationship. Whether to forgive you or not is not your part. It's the other person's part. Your part is to come clean and be sorry and ask for forgiveness. That is your part. Friends, this is a working model of repentance and reconciliation. This Christmas, I hope you can reconcile some relationships. All of us have some broken relationship, either with our parents, our children, our siblings, our friends. Work it out. Give forgiveness and receive forgiveness. You don't just hope that the relationship will resolve by itself over time. Right? You cannot pretend that nothing happened. Right? And then expect relationship to be better. It doesn't work that way. Even if you do not receive forgiveness from the one that you offended, at least you have done your part. You have done the right thing. And if the person still choose not to forgive you and lose sleep over it, that is that person's problem. But now I can sleep properly. You get the point? Giving and forgiving is what we ought to do. We cannot be responsible for the actions of the other person, but we can be responsible for our own actions. And if somebody comes to you and asks for forgiveness, forgive just as Jesus has forgiven you. When we judge ourselves and we allow God to judge ourselves or allow God to judge us, when it leads to our repentance, then and only then will there be a restoration of hope. And you are not helpless and hopeless. Why? Let us move on to the last point, hope. Friends, Micah ends with these words of hope in Micah chapter 7, verse 18 to 20. Who is a God like you? We sang none like you, right? There is none like you. Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever but you delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. 
you will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. Friends, we have hope because of two things. One, God's character. What is God's character? God's character is that He's holy. He judges. That's His character. But God also forgives. And His mercy, catch this, His mercy is greater than His judgment. He judges us, but He forgives us all the more quickly. He's long-suffering when coming to judgment, but He's quick to forgive. His mercy is greater than His anger and His judgment. Secondly, we have hope because of His promises. Why? Because God stays true to His covenantal people. Who are His covenantal people? Israel and the church. Why is Israel special? Because God made a promise to the nation of Israel. And that is what makes them special. Why is the church special? Because we are His covenantal people. He sent His Son to die for you and me and we become the church. And He promised that He will come back again for us. We have hope even in this cycle of judgment, repentance and hope. A picture comes to mind when we talk about judgment, repentance and hope. It is unceasing. That is how God deals with His people. It is unceasing. During Israel's time, it's the same. During New Testament time, it's the same. And during our time, it's the same. In my life, it is the same. Judgment, repentance, hope. Judgment, repentance, hope. Judgment, repentance, hope. Judgment, repentance, hope. You get it? It keeps going on like that. The picture that comes to mind is a washing machine with the cycle. Judgment, repentance, hope. Judgment, repentance, hope. And then very soon it spins faster and faster. Judgment, repentance, hope. Why doesn't it stop? You may ask. Because it's very tiring, you know. When God confronts me of my sin, it's very tiring. It's not nice. Why doesn't it stop? It is like a washing machine going through the cleaning cycle to purge us of our sins. The washing machine uses detergent. God uses the blood of Jesus. His blood washes away our sin. It is not a one-time thing. It's not just a one-time thing. It is a daily thing. Judgment, repentance, hope. Our sin problem is deep. And that's why it takes a lifetime of purging. And this is what we call theologically as the sanctification process. We look forward to the coming advent of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. This process will go on. Embrace it.
embrace this process. Okay? God is not judging you to condemn you. God is judging you so that you can repent and have your hope renewed. So that you know that you are a child of God. And God has hope for you. As we look forward to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you are not hopeless because hope has a name and the name of hope is Jesus. Who is a God like you? Remember this. God wants to pardon us of our sins. So if you are not yet a Christian, you feel that you are hopeless and helpless, what is the answer? Your hope is Jesus.